You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. You all can be seated. You can open up your Bible to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. We're going to finish this short book of the Bible. Uh, this is our, our fifth week in it, but we will conclude it uh, today. And I want, some of you have asked what we're going to go through next, and some of you already know this, and we'll share more about this uh, this evening at our members meeting, Um, but we're going to, a couple weeks from now, we're going to take a couple week break, and Pastor Larry and I are going to preach a couple of sermons. Next week's will be about the way that young people can and should impact older people for the sake of Christ, and then Pastor Larry's going to speak on two Sundays from now, Labor Day weekend, about how the older generations should invest and can have a deep impact on the generations that are younger than them, the people coming behind them. But after that, on on Picnic Sunday, September 8th, we're going to start a series that we're calling Building Up. This is going to be a really important series that I encourage you to be praying for, to make sure you're here for as many of those Sundays as you can. We're going to go through a few chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 12, and then we'll go through part of chapter 15. And there's a lot in there that Paul was writing to this church about how the Holy Spirit would give gifts to them, how they were to be used, what was to motivate the use of them, what was proper use and improper use, and the good effect that the gifts of the Spirit are supposed to have on a congregation. And so we're going to walk through that slowly as a church, because that's something we want to grow in. It's something we want to make sure we're coming to the Word together on a, a issue that can be controversial or confusing or fearful to people. We want to make sure that we're coming to the Word together and receiving guidance from God about how these gifts work, how they're to be used. Uh, so I'd encourage you to prioritize being here with us those Sundays uh, even more than normal, if that's possible, uh, to prioritize being with us. And as an aside to that, this Wednesday we're going to have our next Exploring the Gift of Prophecy meeting. For those of you who've been coming to those to help understand that gift in particular, which has such... Uh, controversy or confusion around it, but it is a a good gift and a prominent gift even in the New Testament. We're wanting to learn about that together. We'll continue that this Wednesday uh, at 6.30. All right, have you found Ruth chapter 4? I hope you have. It's a small little Old Testament book tucked away there. Uh, But Ruth, we're going to see as we end this book, and we may have already known this if we've read the story before, we're going to see as we come to the end of it that it is what people would call a prequel Uh, that the book of Ruth is a prequel. And some of you are probably familiar with that. Some kids, you may not know exactly what that word means. But I I looked up the definition of it because that's helpful. A prequel, at least according to Webster's Dictionary, they define this way. (laughs) Pray for me, by the way, that I don't cough and hack up a lung here. I've been having a hard time with that this week. I sincerely would appreciate that. Um, But a prequel is uh, defined as a work whose story precedes that of an earlier work. And that may just sound like confusing word speak. Uh, so I was trying to think of an example of a prequel that some of you may be familiar with and some of you may not. And if you don't know these books, it's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll help explain it. But there's a series of books that are really oriented towards kids that C.S. Lewis wrote, but adults like to read them as well. They're called the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, there are a series of books. And I actually have a picture, I think, of some of these books, which you might not be able to see the titles from where you are, but that's okay. But you don't need to know anything about these books to understand uh, what a prequel is. But I want 
to use this as an example to explain what a prequel is. So C.S. Lewis wrote these uh, books uh, kind of in the, the beginning part of the 20th century, and he this is the order he published them in. Okay, it started with, I got this laser pointer here, he started with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's probably the one that most people are familiar with. That's the one that he wrote first with this famous character of Aslan and these kids who go into this world called Narnia. And he continued writing more books. He, he wrote... Uh, a little while later, he wrote this book called Prince Caspian. He wrote The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and he kept going, and he, he got to this fifth one, and then he wrote a sixth. This is one that he wrote called The Magician's Nephew. That's what that says if you can't see it. This was the sixth book that he wrote. He had already written the first five. People had started reading them and loving them. They knew all the characters. They knew the story. But when he wrote this one, when he wrote The Magician's Nephew, even though it came after all of these in writing, it was actually about things that happened even before the first one. It, it was about the, how this world even came to be and how these character, how this, who this lion was that was so famous that people already knew. He was trying to tell a story that came way before even the first one uh, that helped to understand why, how you could even get into this fake world. He, he wrote it almost last. There was one that came after, but it was what people would call a prequel. So there was these stories people already knew. There's characters they already knew, but he wanted to explain how they came to be who they were. And so he wrote this story called The Magician's Nephew. And so many people actually read that first. They, when they are just coming to the stories, they read that book first because it comes first in the, this fake world timeline. Uh, but that is an example of a prequel. And, and it helped readers better understand some of the story that they already knew. We're going to see here in Ruth that this whole book of Ruth, these four chapters, is kind of like The Magician's Nephew. That there was already this story that readers would have known, that they would have been really familiar with, that they would have known who the characters were. But whoever wrote Ruth, we don't know exactly who it was, they wrote it later in time, but they wrote it about the things that happened before the things everybody was already familiar with to help understand how did that actually come to be? What's the backstory on that? And so I want to read for you the last verses of Ruth chapter 4. We've made our way through this whole book. We're coming to the end. I want to read for you uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, and go all the way to the end, verse 22. And I want to see if you can pick up on what this book of Ruth is a prequel of. Like, what was the story people already would have known that this author is just trying to give backstory to? And see if you can pick up on it. I think you'll be able to. The author makes it pretty clear, especially in the last few verses, what the story was that people already would have known that he's wanted to help them appreciate even more. So follow along with me, verses 13 to 22 of Ruth chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. And became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then this is how the book ends. Now, these are the generations of 
Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So are you able to tell, it may be a little tricky, but are you able to tell what the story is that Ruth is supposed to be a prequel of? This whole story, what is it to be a prequel of? Any guesses? You can say it if you, if you think you know it. Anybody? Maybe it's not as obvious as I thought. It's the story of King David. That's quite literally is the last word of the story. And that would seem like a weird way to end this, this wonderful story about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi's like, why in the world are you ending this with a, a genealogy that goes back to Perez and then extends ahead in time, even past these characters? But you see, that's how verse 17 ended. That this baby who was just born, Obed, becomes the grandfather of David. And unless we have any mystery about it, the author just kind of goes back and gives even more details. Say, this guy became the father of this guy, became the father of this guy, and it all culminated in David. And it seems like readers would have known who David was. They would have known what his life was like, that, that they knew who he was. And now this story of Ruth, when they read it, it's like, oh, I get more now who he is, like how he came to be who he is, how God oriented his story to have him become this great king, have him become this great ruler of Israel. And so the book of Ruth, it seems, we find out here at the very end, the whole story is like a prequel. It's a backstory to help us understand David. It's to help us understand who he was, how he came to be. Because otherwise, think about it, why would we need to know or why would we care about who Ruth was or who Boaz was or who Naomi was or Obed was? There was tons of people who became widows. There was tons of people who had romantic relationships developed, but why does this need to be in the Bible? Why does this actually end the record of, of God's people and their history? It's because it's the backstory to King David, who holds such a prominent place. And we'll, we'll learn more about him in just a moment. But I want you to see, the reason I'm taking time to explain that is that this whole book of Ruth, the fact that it's even in the Bible and that somebody took the time to write it for us, it, it shows us, because it's a prequel, that it's, it has what I would call like a forward momentum to it. The story is not just to be read as a story like, oh, that's wonderful. That's such a cute story about Ruth and Boaz and how God built it. The reason this story is even told to us is to point us ahead in time beyond them. To help us understand how David came to be. And I, I will see in a moment to help us extend and see even beyond him far in time how Jesus came to be. That this whole story we see at the end is to have a forward-looking momentum to it. It's supposed to press us beyond the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi to see the bigger story, see the longer story, the greater story that God was telling. So I, I want us to walk back through these verses and then see how this fits within the whole Bible. Because I don't want us to just glance over these happenings here because it's a wonderful ending to the story. But I want us to see in a couple steps how this book is moving us ahead, how it's pointing us ahead in time. And the first step, I would say, that we see even within these last verses is this move from a focus on Boaz, who's been talked about as the redeemer throughout this book, and this subtle move we'll see in this text to where now Obed, his son, is viewed as the redeemer. 
like he, he's starting to take his place. Because in this story, if you've been here with us the last few weeks, you've seen that the pro- most prominent characters are Boaz and Ruth. They're the ones who feature very prominently. Naomi has a little bit of a role, especially at the beginning, and interjects some things here and there. But the main characters throughout the story are Boaz and Ruth, who, who fall in love, who Boaz, uh, we saw last week, he uh, advocates for her, becomes her redeemer, in a sense buys her as his bride to care for her and protect her and love her. They've been the main characters. But here at the end, they kind of back off stage and the most prominent people are this new baby that comes to them named Obed and Naomi starts to emerge back again to the front and and we see this transition from Boaz to Obed we see here in verse 13 that it says that that Ruth and Boaz as a married couple now that that the Lord blesses them with a child I love the language that he says that the Lord gave her conception Though that's far from the main point of this text, I would want us to to remember that and note that and to be humbled by that and grateful for that, that if God blesses us with children, it is his blessing. It's not just some natural occurrence. Every life is a gift of God. Every child that is conceived is a gift of God. He's the giver of life in the ancient world and even today. But the Lord gives them conception. She bears a son. She gives birth to him. And then there's this de- these details in verse 14 and following where it seems like some arrangement is made. We don't know exactly what's going on. But where Naomi, who is the mother-in-law of Ruth, the, Ruth is the one who has the baby with Boaz, it seems like custody or care at least for this new baby is given to Naomi. This woman who's getting older, this woman who had adult sons already and had her husband die and had her sons die, uh, that she, in a sense, becomes the caretaker. She becomes the one who, in many ways, functions almost as a mother for this baby, Obed, which the neighborhood lady's name, by the way, which is a strange custom. I would not recommend uh, having your neighborhood ladies name your kids. You might get some weird names. Uh, But this baby, Obed, is cared for by what is his grandma, by Naomi. She's the one who enters into prominence here. And she is the one even who nurses him, we find out, in verse 16. She becomes the nurse of him. It seems like he is living with her. Like we don't see Boaz and Ruth actually caring for him, but it seems like she is. And even she is spoken of in verse 17. As the, these neighborhood ladies say, a son has been born to Naomi. That's the mother-in-law. So it seems like whatever this arrangement is, that she's given more custody of him. But I, I want to point out something to you. Because this is a, a beautiful reversal of what happened at the start of Ruth. Where, where this woman, Naomi, had lost her two sons. And she came back to the town of Bethlehem that she had left long ago. And she, of her own estimation, says that she is bitter. That, that she is empty. That, that she feels that the Lord, in some sense, is disciplining her or, or, or bringing these things upon her. But by the end of the story, we see this absolute reversal. Where these same ladies who probably heard her complaint and heard her grief, are now celebrating with her, saying, the Lord has blessed us, blessed be him, like blessed be your family and the line that's going to come from you. Look what God has done for you. Look how God has turned your story around. And in this story, we see what I was saying, that the Obed, this new baby, starts to be talked about as the redeemer now. 
Did you note that? Boaz throughout the story has been talked about as a potential redeemer for Ruth and Naomi. And then in chapter 4, the start of it, he actually became the redeemer of her. He actually uh, bought responsibility for them to care for them and have Ruth be his wife. But look at verse 14 and 15. These ladies that are, are friends, apparently, of Naomi say, Blessed be the Lord who hasn't left you this day without a redeemer. So they're talking about who the redeemer is, who the one that's going to care for her. And they say, and may his name be renowned in Israel. And I, at this point, still think they're talking about Boaz, like that, that he's the redeemer. He's the one who's been spoken of as the redeemer throughout. But then verse 15, they keep going, and they say, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So when she's talking about this, they're talking about this redeemer that's going to care for Naomi, that's going to protect her and provide for her. They're no longer talking about Obed or about Boaz. They're talking about Obed, this baby. So there's already, even in the story, there's this kind of forward movement of who this redeemer is, is. That Boaz played his role. He did a wonderful thing. But now there's going to be a new redeemer. There is a new redeemer, Obed, who's going to grow up and he's going to care for his grandma. He's going to provide for her. He's going to protect her. He's going to uh, treat her as part of his family. That, that he's going to, to redeem. That he's going to protect. He's going to give guidance and assistance to. And so there's a step of him being spoken of as the redeemer now. But what we see that is that these women who, they're anticipating great things from Obed, this little baby. They're, they're saying, his name's going to be renowned. He's going to take care of you. Naomi, he's going to provide for you. Like, blessed be God who has provided you with this new son, this new grandson to be your redeemer. I would suggest to you, based on how this book ends, that those ladies' sights weren't set big enough. And that they didn't look far enough into the future. Because they see this little baby and they're saying, He's going he's gonna to be a blessing to you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to do these great things for you and for your household, Naomi. But the author is wanting us to see that they should have been, if they had the knowledge, should have looking a couple generations even further. To see that there was going to be a redeemer who would come, who would blow the stuff that Obed did out of the water. That who would be far better, who would be far greater of a redeemer than Boaz could be, than, than Obed could be they did not look far enough in time and didn't have their sights set high enough because this author continues the story that's been this wonderful provision of a child to carry on the name of this family to provide for his grandma to be a redeemer for her but the author concludes the story not by saying isn't obed great like what a wonderful guy obed was and how he cared for his grandma he points us ahead two generations to his grandson, David. And the people who read this, and we may be familiar with this too, we're, we're familiar with the story of David, at least in general. We know who he was, and the author is wanting us to see that there was going to be this even greater redeemer, that there's this move from Obed to David, that, that there's this transition forward in time that he was going to be a greater redeemer, a greater caretaker of others. And this would have been a big deal. You see verse 17 culminates with the name David. You see verse 22 as they back up and tell its genealogy again. They both end in David. And I want you to think about what would have been in these people's minds when they heard the name David. Like when they read this story and they're like, oh, like these people were his grandparents. That 
David, like this is that guy. This would have been a big deal to them. It may not be a big deal to us to see those five letters on the page and think who David is. To the original readers of this, this would have been a big deal to see. This is how David came to be. Because remember, do you remember how Ruth started? The very first phrase of it was, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. There was this ugly period for God's people where the judges ruled, where it would be this cycle where there would be a good season and God would bless them and protect them and deliver them from enemies, but then they would sink down into disobedience again and God would let them be overtaken or harmed or controlled by others. Then he'd raise up a, a ruler again, a judge. It was an unstable time. Like even in the days of Ruth, it was this unstable time. There was no strength about them. There was a time in many ways of craziness as a nation but when david finally came this grandson of obed when he finally came this is the king david of the old testament he was israel's greatest king that they had in the entire old testament he he was the one who finally for them brought a sense of stability brought a sense of peace. He's the one that God used to defeat some of their enemies, to give them a a reputation that was notable in the nations around them. He was the one who brought stability and strength and vitality to this nation that was just floundering around. He was the one God used to do that. And what Obed would do for his grandma, like in a family form, caring for her and giving her some stability for years to come, David, his grandson, did for the whole nation. Like he, was, he was one who protected the whole nation, who, who had wisdom that he gave and dispensed to the nation, who had military strength and strategy that helped defend the whole nation. What Obed did for his grandma, David did for the whole nation. He became this redeemer, this protector, this, this figurehead who, who did far more than what Boaz did, who did far more than what Obed did. He provided protection and stability for the entire nation of Israel. And so we see even in this book, there's this forward look from Obed, this redeemer of his grandma, to David, who would be the redeemer of this entire nation of Israel, who, who would protect them, who would defend them. I want to pause somewhat as an aside, and I want to connect a few dots for us, too, about how this backstory of David that we've read about in Ruth actually helped him become the person that he became. But any good backstory is helping you understand how did he come to be like he was? How did she become like she was? This story that we've gone through the last several weeks is is beautiful. And these are (coughs) the ancestors of David. They would have just been a couple generations behind them. Maybe he got to talk to them when he was a kid. I don't know. But I want you to think of a couple ways that this backstory helped him become who he was. I think this backstory and what happened with his grandparents, it helped him to learn to trust in God in the midst of trials. In the midst of challenges and adversity and uncertainties, his grandparents, his great-grandma, Naomi, or great-great-grandma, I get all those mixed up, his great-great-grandma, Naomi, she had seen God move in her life when there was a myriad of unknown things. And there were sufferings and deaths that have come into her family. And she moves back to Bethlehem not knowing what God is going to do. She was trusting him. And she saw God work. She saw him move in the midst of trial, in the midst of uncertainty. And David would have heard those stories. They would have been embedded in his family and passed down to him of what great-great-grandma Naomi did. How she trusted God in the midst of adversity. 
Think about how this backstory would have developed King David's heart for the nations. King David, his great-grandma Ruth, was a Moabite. Like she was this lady from a foreign culture who converted to become an Israelite and said, I will move to Bethlehem. I will uproot from where I was and I will come and live among God's people. And she was welcomed in by them. She was received by them. And King David, you see as you read the Psalms that he wrote, you see as he uh, wrote these songs, he, that he had a heart for the nations. That he had a bigger vision for what God was going to do than just how he was going to care for Israel. That he saw that God was eventually going to bless all the nations, just like he had brought David's grandma or great-grandma Ruth uh, into the people of God. David had a heart to see people of all nations come into the people of God. And you see, lastly, I would say this, that you see why David was such a generous person. David had immense wealth, but you also see that he was generous with the wealth God blessed him with. And did he not probably learn of that from his great-grandpa Boaz? This man who had wealth and renown in Bethlehem, but who used it to bless vulnerable people. Used it to be generous to people that, that he didn't owe anything to, but he was generous towards them. David had heard about that. He had known that record within his family, and I think it shaped him into who he was. And it would be a helpful exercise, I would suggest, for any of us to do sometime. To just pause and take some time and think about how the people who've gone before you in your family or the people who've gone before you in the family of God and the ways that they've invested with you, just give some time to think, how have they shaped me? How have they made me into who I am? How have they, their example and their testimony, how has it impacted me? We see it in the life of David, that his grandparents, his great-grandparents, his great-great-grandparents, that they impacted him and made him into who he was. But we see here in the book of Ruth how it ends. It Very literally, the last word of this book is David. Uh, that's where this story culminated, where the original people who wrote this and read this, when they heard that name David, I think they would have thought of, yes, our king, our man, like the guy who stands up for us and who's brought prosperity to us. Like That was what they would have thought of with David. But we live thousands of years later. And we know what happened after this genealogy ended. David was kind of like a high water mark in the Old Testament history for their kings. Like they, they didn't start well with King Saul, but quickly they got this really good king with King David where they thought, yes, this is it. Like we're prominent now. We're stable. We're strong. God's blessing us. We're getting richer. Like they would have thought that there was this really stable time that was just going to endure. But we know through history that that did not last long. That David was the high water mark, and then things just slowly went downhill from him. That as generations followed after him, that uh, God's people just sunk and sunk and sunk. There was worse and worse kings, not better and better. That their station in life and in the world got lower and lower. They got less and less respected, not more and more. And it became clear that there was this redeemer, there would be this savior, this rescuer who needed to be greater than David. Because the, the stuff that the good that David brought about did not last. It, it, was, it had a short shelf life and then just went away. And there was this need that grew in God's people, this awareness that they had that someday in the future, long after David, long after Obed, long after Boaz, there needed to be some redeemer who could actually do something that would last, that could actually change things that, and not have them revert and go back. 
And I, I find it fascinating that how this book of Ruth ends with this genealogy of, of these people who fathered others. When you turn to the New Testament, I would actually encourage you to turn there for a second. Turn to Matthew 1 if you can. The very first chapter, very first couple verses of the New Testament. After all this history has unfolded, after all these kings have followed David, after it's all gone downhill, after God's people have been disciplined and sent into exile, Finally, God speaks again to them after a period of silence, and it starts with a genealogy of all things. And in Matthew 1, as this New Testament era, this new story begins later in time, it starts with this genealogy. And I want to turn your attention to verses 3 through 6 and see if these don't sound familiar. See if some of these names that I maybe just butchered when I read the end of Ruth chapter 4 sound familiar. It starts with this genealogy, and in verse 3, uh, it, start, it says that Judah was the father of Perez. That's where that genealogy started in Ruth, right? And Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father, here's the names we've known this summer, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. But that author, Matthew, keeps going, and we don't have time to read it, but history didn't stop and did not peak at King David. Like it kept going and, and things got worse, but you see that that genealogy culminated in the arrival of Jesus. That, that it culminated in another one who was born in Bethlehem, just like David was, just like Obed was, just like Boaz was. It culminated in the arrival of another baby there born in Bethlehem. And we see, as we know the story of the Bible, not just of Ruth, that there's this forward movement, not just from Boaz to Obed and Obed to David, but from David to Jesus. Like that long after David left this earth and long after all the good that he did dissolved away, there was a greater redeemer who would come. And his name was Jesus. And he was a descendant of David. And if David won up his grandparents and great-grandparents and what he did, like in providing for a nation, protecting a nation, then Jesus infinitely won up David. Like he, he blew the things that David did and the things that David provided out of the water. They were both born in humble beginnings there in Bethlehem. But even think of how they came to be. And in the backstory of King David, there's this birth to a widow, okay? Which is a beautiful thing that, that God provided her with a husband, that he provided them with a child. But when Jesus came to be, he gave conception to a virgin, which is not just beautiful, but which is miraculous. And both David and Jesus, when they came into prominence, they faced challenges to their rule. They faced adversity, both of them with courage and with trust in God. But what Jesus suffered was far greater. David suffered some real serious mistreatment from his fellow human beings, even from his own sons, when you read the record of his life. Jesus suffered the punishment of God the Father on the cross. Whose suffering was worse? Jesus' suffering, but he faced it with trust in his heavenly Father. Both of these men were laid in a grave. Both of them faced death. Both of them were laid in a grave, and only one of them walked back out of it thus far. 
someday, basically. But Jesus walked back out of the grave. Both of them defeated great enemies, right? David, when nobody else would stand up to Goliath, you may remember this story, when nobody else would stand up to Goliath, David did, and he killed him. He struck him down. But when no one even could stand up to Satan, who is far more intimidating, infinitely more intimidating than Goliath, when no one would stand up, no one could stand up to Satan, Jesus did, and he crushed him. David defeated powerful enemies like the Philistines and these great powers of their day. Jesus defeated the enemy that has wrecked human history and defeated all of us forever, the enemy of death. He defeated death. Which one is greater? David brought peace and stability to an entire nation, to the nation of Israel. Jesus brings peace and security to people of all nations and people of all time who will trust in him. David provided security that was temporary, that was limited, but Jesus provides security that is permanent and that is perfect. And David ruled from this great throne of sorts in Jerusalem for a couple of decades, but Jesus now, the one who's been raised from the dead, he lives and rules from a throne in heaven forever. He is the greater redeemer. And if this story of Ruth was to point us ahead to David and better understand him, then this whole story of David even is to point us ahead to Jesus, the greatest redeemer, the one who who far surpassed him, the one who all this other story that came before them is just prequel to the story of Jesus to help us understand him, to appreciate him and what he has done for us. I want to think how this is relevant to us, how the story of Ruth, how it, the way that it points ahead to Jesus is relevant to us. The first way, and I will try to say this every Sunday that I preach, is that, that the, the impact this text should have on you, that this story should have on you, is that if you have not yet, you should turn to Jesus as your redeemer. That you should turn to Jesus as your rescuer, because you need one. Whether you realize it or not, you need a rescuer. Ruth was very obviously vulnerable as a widow, as someone who had no power or recourse in her society. She, it was obvious she needed a redeemer, somebody to care for her, someone to protect her. But we are in a far worse state because of our sin. And we can do nothing to deal with our sin. We can do nothing to protect ourselves from the wrath of God that should come to us. But Jesus has done something. He laid down his life upon the cross for our sins. He took them upon himself, and he was crushed in our place. And he was raised from the dead, and now he invites us. If we will turn to him in repentance of our sins and trust in him, he says, I will receive you. I will be your redeemer. I will stand up for you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I would call out upon you if you've not yet to turn to Christ in faith, to turn to him as your redeemer, as your rescuer. Because if you turn to anywhere else, even to yourself, you will stand before God someday and you will be guilty and there will be nothing that you can do when you stand before him. But if you cry out to Christ today, he will rescue you. He will be your redeemer. He'll be your advocate. He will stand up for you. I would call upon you to turn to him as your redeemer, your rescuer. We also want to think for a moment what relevance this has for those of us who've already done that. We're continuing to do that. We see Jesus and know Jesus as our Redeemer. I would want to encourage you with this. that the same, You see that the same author that was writing the story of Ruth was writing the story of Christ. The same writer of the big story of history writes the small stories of history. 
Like he, he writes the, the scripts of our life. This, this was true of Ruth. This was true of Naomi. When they couldn't understand the big picture of what God was doing and why he was letting these things happen to them, God was still writing their story nonetheless. He, he was still writing it. He was, he was drawing it up just the way that he had planned the rough edges and all, the painful parts and all. And the same is true in our lives. Our lives have difficult dimensions to them. Our lives have painful moments and seasons that sometimes feel like they're never going to end. We have grief that is difficult to bear. But there are, just as there in the story of Ruth, there was no accidents, there was no oversights of God, there were no mistakes in his writing of her story. The same is true in yours. Like God, I would say it this way, God is not just watching your life unfold. He is writing the story of your life. Good and bad and ugly, all of it. He is writing the story of your life. And that is easy for us to believe when everything is bright and happy and pleasant. Yes, I believe God's writing this chapter of my life. I believe he's the author of this part of my life. But what about when people die? What about when grief comes? What about when children don't come? What about when the longings of our heart don't come to fruition? Is he still writing it then? Is the author of that big story still writing those parts of my story? And I would say to you, he is. I would say it this way, is that you need to trust the author of your story with the arc of your story. Because we like to sometimes think that the Christian life is just some cookie-cutter, easy life that God's going to bless and bless and bless and bless, and it's going to be easy till someday I die, and then I'll be raised from the dead someday to live with him forever. But God doesn't write most stories that way. God wrote the story of Ruth and Naomi with bitterness in it, and with death that seemed like it could never be overcome. He writes our stories with hard chapters. And sometimes with endings on this side of the grave that don't seem like they're tied up nicely. He lets us have sufferings. He lets us have waitings. And he doesn't always, just like he did in this story of Ruth, give us these aha moments. Oh, now I get it. Now I know why you let these hard things happen to me. Sometimes he lets us just sit in them. And he doesn't connect all the dots. He doesn't finish the script the way that we want it to on this side of the grave. But I want us to to know that if we are united with Jesus, that even if the arc of our story takes us into deep suffering, even if it takes us into hard places that we never would have gone ourselves, we can know that he is eventually bending the arc of our story to be with him for eternity. That even if I have to live decades of suffering and waiting and pain in this life, that that is temporary And that someday on the other side of death, I will be with him forever. And he will raise me up to be part of a world where there are no widows. And where there's no death and there's no disease and there's no suffering. There's no pain. That is how he's bending your story. And it might be through some dark and hard chapters. But you can trust the author of your story with the arc of your story even today. Earlier we sang this line, and we sang it a couple of times, and I want you to think if you meant what you said. We sang, Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. Use my ransomed life in any way you choose. The story of Ruth and Naomi had bitterness and suffering and waiting and grief, and yours will too, and does probably now. But God is bending the arc of your story to eternity, not just to the grave.
He is bending it to the resurrection of Jesus into the kingdom of his son where there will be no suffering. And we can trust him in the dark chapters he has for us now. C.S. Lewis, when he was writing those books, the Chronicles of Narnia, he told a, a young man who had written him some questions. He acknowledged that when he was writing these books, he didn't really plan out the series in advance. He just wrote the first one, and it was kind of successful, so he wrote the next one, Prince Caspian, and then he thought he was done, and he kept just writing more and more and more. And the best human storytellers, and we like to think we're good storytellers, and we should be able to write the story of our lives, the best human storytellers are just winging it. Like we're just kind of stringing stuff together and thinking we know what's best and how things should get resolved. I want to end this sermon with a quote from David himself, from Psalm 139, verse 16, because God does not wing it when he's writing our story. Like King David wrote this. He said to God, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Like God is the author of our story. And he includes dark and painful times and dark and painful seasons, but he is writing our story and we can trust him in the midst of those chapters. And we can have confidence that someday there's going to be endless chapters where there's nothing but good, where there's nothing but blessing on the other side of the grave. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and we'll sing a, a last song.